But as a result of this, I managed to get myself some interviews with the various media companies as a young bloke, as I'm about to head off to university. And what happens is I get myself a job, of all places, at the Melbourne Truth. Now, for anybody who doesn't know, the Melbourne Truth was basically tits and bums that Rupert Murdoch owned, right? (laughs) So this is the equivalent of the sun in London, I kind of guess, the best description of it, except it had a very good racing form guide, which everybody said that they bought it for the racing form guide. In actual fact, they read it for page three, which was the topless girl, and for the the agony art, which was called Heart Balm, which people might remember, which was basically salacious tales about people's sex lives, which was very funny. Anyway, so I end up in this crazy place. And the truth had a long history. It was owned by, at one stage by Ezra Norton. So salacious tales. Mm. What, what were, some of the great headlines um, were when Sir Billy Sneddon, the former opposition leader of Australia, died. I think their headline was, Sir Billy dies on the job because he was <laughs> right. found naked in bed. That was the second line, actually. He was naked in bed. He was wearing a condom. Oh. It was loaded. This oh is the lo- so this is the type of salacious wow. stuff that we don't get these days wow. in journalism, which is fantastic. So anyway, so that was my original 12 months. The reason was mm. that I'd been hired by News Limited, Rupert Murdoch, mm. to basically become a cadet. And this was your pathway. I could have become Aussie Ostrich like another good mate of mine did over at TV Week. Really? But no, I didn't get that job. I got the job on the Melbourne Truth. So after having, oh, and my first job on the Melbourne Truth was I had to go and steal something, a big boxing poster off the, the wall of a gym that was nearby for a boxing bout that was on. And they told me, basically, um, can you bring it back? If you get caught, you don't work for us anymore. That no. was one of my first things. It was hilarious. So the That's first, your first one, assignment. That was my first assignment. It was just <laughs> the stories I could tell you just out of that life alone were funny. Anyway, after about nine months of that or something like that, I was granted the cadetship on the Australian. Hang on a second. How do you go from tits and bum to the Australian? Pretty easily. It was right next door. <laughs> <laughs> so hang on. What were you doing at the at the truth? Were you if your job's going and stealing posters, you weren't actually writing or doing. You were. Oh, a bit you'd of a write gopher? little bits and pieces. So you were the gopher. Right. So you were the copy boy. And basically, as a result, I tell you, there's some amazing stories though that came through in those days. One of the best ones that I can always remember. This is just as I got onto the Australian. Remember, these are the days when I started, when there was no mobile phone. I mean, mobile phones are recent phenomenons. Uh, There was was barely even a teleprinter. I remember that when they had photographs, like facsimile photographs that had to come interstate, that they would send them basically via these enormous drum machines that used to live in the post office. And so the copy board would have to run down there and get the photograph and bring it back, and it would be touched up by the artist, hand-touched up. One of the great stories of this was when when the bridge over across Darwin was crashed into by the ship mm. and the, the thing came down and there was an amazing photograph the next day on the front page. I think it was the Australian. Anyway, what they'd done is that they'd gone to the post office, picked up their photograph, this amazing photograph of this site and it was cars teetering on the edge of it. It was, you know, very traumatic and a bloke is running away from his car and he's been snapped by a snapper mm. and this is on the front page of the photograph. Anyway, so it's about, oh, let's call it, 11 o'clock in the morning, he gets a photograph. The, the editor of the paper gets a phone call from this fellow who says, oh, I'm the fellow who's on the front page of your paper. He says, oh, would you like a few copies of the paper? The photograph's amazing. He said, yes, yes. He said, I'd like a few copies. Could you do me another favour? He said, what's that? He said, could you ring the Department of Social Services, please? He says, what? What do you mean? He says, well, there's something not quite right. He goes, what do you mean? Well, he said, they've rung me 
asking me why I've claimed a disability pension for only having one arm for the past 20 years, <sighs> when clearly on the front page of your paper this morning, I've got two. So they painted another arm on him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> True wow. story. Wow. So that was that was life before yeah. the modern communication. Network. And, that, and I started really in an era where technology changed. And that mm. was one of the brilliances of having seen technology evolve so much. And as, even as a journalist, as a young journalist, you had to keep up. I can remember, you know, teleprinted machines, you'd be typing into these things with tape coming out of them, for goodness sakes. Mm. It was madness, mm. complete madness compared with how we do it today. And I always vowed that you had to stay up with the latest of technology. And I reckon in some ways that's how you make your career go longer as well. Yeah. It's amazing to see when we get so used to doing things a certain way now. Even when I started in radio, there were still places that were using, like in regional radio where I started, the reel-to-reel where you would actually have to take a razor blade and cut to edit. So if you stuffed up the cut and then you sticky-taped the tape back together and that's how the, the interview was edited that way and you think... It, now that we can do it with the touch of a button, it seems so impossible to imagine that there was ever a time that anybody was painting photographs or ca- you know going down to the po- post office to go and collect a photograph. It D- seems so old school. So, so stupid. But yeah. that was basically the way, and, or, or that we're sitting here now having a conversation in high quality digital mm. that people can pick up immediately on their phone wherever they are. Mm. I mean, to think about that 15 years ago, that was impossible. Yeah, it couldn't bizarre. have happened. That's where life is great, where life is so challenging because you've got to adapt, you've got to turn your head, you've got to be a bit creative with these things. Mm. And I think that's the most fun about life is you just keep learning. No, oh, you're always so positive, Ross. That's why I love you. You are. So when you got into the Australia, did you ever study journalism or did you just start the cadetship and get work that way? So I got work. Now, the interesting thing was that I deferred all my university courses. My grand plans of maybe becoming a doctor or a marine biologist, all these ideas that I had. Um, basically went out the window. Rupert Murdoch at that time had a serious fight with the RMIT in Melbourne and its journalism school. And he basically decided that he didn't like the journalism school there, that, that taught them all the wrong things. And so he decided that he would hire his own tutors and his own shorthand teachers and his own everything. And so we used to have to go off to cadet classes once a week and basically be grilled by somebody about what was going on. And then we'd have to go to shorthand classes. And we weren't allowed to be graded from our cadetship until we had at least 80 words a minute shorthand, of which I still have today. Can you do shorthand? Oh, brilliantly. Really? I'm going to, I mean, I, I'm going to ask you for a little quick lesson when we, or now. <laughs> now is good. Just on the back of a bit of paper. Okay, please. I am going to ask you for a quick lesson. There we go. So there you go. So court reporting had to, <laughs> if you're court reporting, you had to have it. So I'm one of the few people who can write hieroglyphics these, these days. <laughs> That's really impressive. And that impressive. just came from being a cadet and being basically wrapped over the knuckles by Judy, the shorthand teacher. Again, no recording machines in those days. Yeah. And so you had to have shorthand. The, I mean, the interesting thing about going through that way is really, there's, there's a lot of people that have gone through journalism and actually gone to uni and learned. But the only way to really get a sense of how to do it is to be on the job. Yeah. You know, so not going to university and getting your foot in the door that way and going through the cadetship, you sort of bypass the need for that because that's where you learn all the meat and potatoes of how to actually do this. That's exactly right. So then the next phase of this comes that I've got the idea I'm going to be a sports reporter. So you're in the pool working at the Australian, you're on the cadet and you go and cover fires and crime and all that sort of stuff. That's all good. And anyway, so I discovered, however, there were a few things I noticed about the finance department. And I noticed that number one, they got their name in the paper every single day. 
Right. Number two, I noticed that they seemed to get paid more than everybody else in the office. Okay, yeah. And number three, they used to go to the races on Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> and I thought, this is the job for me. <laughs> so I went down and for some reason, I suddenly had just a knack for doing it. And I don't know why it came or what it was, but I and it sort of helped that they all left and left me pretty much alone in the Australian's Finance Bureau of Melbourne, which I think, if I think about this, and I would have been... 19 or 20 at the time. It would be unheard of these days. Yeah. But as it turned out, it all sort of worked. So hang on, you've just kind of gone down and knocked on the door and said, I'd like to see what you do down here and give things well, a yeah, shot. Well, yeah, but as part of the rotation, you'd move around to different departments right. and so forth as a cadet. You end up in finance and I just ended up in finance and it just worked for some reasons. Why did you get it? Were you were you a money-wise person before no, then? Or? I'm a kid from the country. I had no idea. You know, I've still got the idea that if you've got a paycheck, you spend it. I'm, you yeah. know, <laughs> Oh, I'm glad you're the finance yeah. editor. That's really That's helpful. Exactly right. <laughs> but, you know, but you just, for some reason, I understood the, the way the in which... The concepts. The concepts right. of it, the way in which corporate worked. And as you went out and you, you met more people, brokers, fund managers, and then, you know, uh, chief executives of big companies, it, it sort of went from there. And, and then the next phase of it was you had to have a mentor. And so in the end, I left the Australian... After, which is not a bad story, actually. I was supposed to go and work for the Financial Review. So I'd gone okay at the Australian. I was supposed to go and work at the Financial Review. But at this stage, I'm only 20 and I look like I'm 12. Nice. And the editor of the great esteemed editor, long-term editor, Patty McGuinness, P.P. McGuinness, famous editor of the Financial Review, had come from Sydney to Melbourne to interview two people. He was hiring a B-grade journalist, which mm-hmm. was supposed to be me, and <laughs> yeah. he was hiring a cadet that day. Paddy, it would be fair to say, had had a few drinks at lunch. Right. And when he turns up and is confronted by me, he looks at me and immediately presumes I'm the cadet because I look like I'm 12. Right. So he offers me a pay cut. Oh, that's <laughs> nice of him. Very good. And I'm sitting there going, well, why would I come and work for the Financial Review for less money? And he goes, the glory of it, son. The glory oh, of, of it. Of course. And I go, mm, well, I'll go and think about that. So I disappear out the door and I don't go and work for the Financial Review. Because he's made a mistake. Right. Which they tell so me about So you later. didn't know he thought you were the cadet? He no, ju- not you until just, afterwards. Right. You just thought he was I offering thought he was you offering less money. Pay I'm going, what am I doing this for? Okay. Anyway, so then another bloke comes along and grabs me. And that bloke is Robert Gottliebson. Bob Gottliebson, one of the doyens of finance journalism. So if you think about people you now know who talk about finance, so talk about myself, David Koch, mm-hmm. think about, uh, say, Alan Kohler, all of them at some stage were mentored by Bob Gottliebson, one of the all-time greats. Walkley award-winning journalist, should be really in, the, in journalism's hall, hall of fame. Created Business Review Weekly, and that's where I right. first came across him. So we set this thing up basically as an insert in the old National Times. By this time, we're getting on and working with some of the really great finance journalists of their time. So he basically takes us all under, the, under our wing. And, occasion, and Bob, you know... God love him. I, Bob is one of my great mentors and great mates, mm. but he's a bit mad, I've got to say. And even he'd admit this as well. So suddenly you'd be writing a cover story for the magazine and Bob would ring you on a Sunday night. It'd have to be in by Monday and say, I've had a look at the story. Uh, just come over, have a bit, bit of quick dinner, which meant you were also babysitting the kids. <laughs> And we'll knock it into shape. And Bob would sit there breathless. Up, up, up. Well, I think Ross, maybe. So this whole notion. So, But he was brilliant because he came up with the idea of news you could use and then also came up with the idea that as we were working for that magazine and it was a magazine, we also had to basically do 
radio and television wherever we could. And so therefore, to promote the magazine, we would do a lot of radio, we'd do television when it came up, and that's how it all evolved from there. Right. So, And, and the magazine you're talking about is Business Review Weekly. Business you Review, with BRW. On that. Yeah, right. So, which was incredible. So he created that. And then, of course, David Koch came along. Mm-hmm. And then from there, another magazine, Personal Investment Magazine, which Koch and I basically worked together on, set that up together all those years ago. And, and, you know, as I said, this just sort of evolved and we took the magazines to New Zealand. We took them to to the UK. So we went all over the place as we got older and sort of learned all of this. And it was just an amazing period of time. But also because you had, you know, Bob there who was the boss and who was, you know, really a great entrepreneur in his own right. You came to know all of the big corporate names. You'd done stories on them all. You were were writing constantly. This was really where it all came from. You were broadcasting pretty constantly as well. Mm. So all of this notion about trying to boil it down and make it relatable to the ordinary person, it it largely came from, from, from the ideas, I guess, that Bob Gottliebson had. There's a lot about the timing of when you came through that would make this kind of career almost impossible now. Yeah, probably, because you'd need the tertiary education. You'd need the mentors. I think you could probably go with the mentors. But if you think about it, magazines are pretty much dead now. Mm. You know, And it's a sad thing, but it's true. I mean, people can get their information in so many different ways. But, but you I'm, also can't really now turn up to the finance department as somebody with no experience and go, I'll give it a crack and then end up as a finance editor. Probably like, true. I'd guess that. You know, Maybe people gave people an opportunity at a younger age. Like mm. I was, when was I? Uh, 25, I would have been, Koshi would, Koshi's what, about three, three years older than me, three, four years older than me. So he was the editor of Personal Investment Magazine. So I was 25 and they made me the editor of a national magazine that was <laughs> selling basically 80,000 copies a month. I mean, it made a lot of money. And you sit there and you go, well, what would you do? But as it turns out, you know, it all, it all sort of worked out. So when you were in those jobs that were maybe at the time a bit, not over your head, but you were sort of stepping up to the role. How would you approach that? Were you thinking, shit, I've got to work my ass off to, or, or were you just naturally talented at I the guess things so. that you No, had, no, no, you're never talented. And also there's times in your career when somebody else wants your job and you've got to mm. be realistic about that. And there were times in my career when that certainly would have happened. Um, but at the end of the day, you've got to be, and let's be honest, as a 25-year-old, you're pretty loose anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and I was. <laughs> yeah. I was you know, and so my social life was not, you know, sort of getting in the way of work, as, as, as should I say. But, you know, I, I, I guess the things that become the, the responsibilities are, even as a young person, trying to manage staff. Mm. That's always the issue, is managing staff's the hardest part of running anything. And trying to put up, and if, and I always know that having run bigger staff, smaller staffs, if ever you're going to wake up at three o'clock in the morning with your eyes wide open looking at the ceiling, it's always because of staff issues. Yeah, right. And so as soon as you can sort of free yourself from a lot of that stuff, you know, going back to the reporting, it makes your life a lot easier and yeah. makes your life a lot happier from my point of view, at least anyway. So you were doing bits and pieces of radio and telly as the finance guy commentating. Yeah. Well, it was funny. I, I've got a the, the weird story about this. I started doing a lot of Channel Ten work, Good Morning Australia, mm-hmm. which was at the time it would have been Kerry Ann was doing it. Right. So Kerry Ann, my great mate, I've known her for thirty years or more. Anyway, so I can remember at some stage it must have been late eighties, early nineties. They get me to go and co-host for a couple of weeks with Kerry Ann over Christmas, which was and you talk about 
shitting yourself when you're doing something. <laughs> Jesus. Turn up at four o'clock in the morning and go and do that. That wasn't something, and that was something I'd not done. I was only late 20s or something like that at the stage. So that's come out of you're just doing a finance style spot on that show, and then they've gone, you've got a bit of something about you. And yeah, we'll come and host it for a few weeks. Wow. And that was kind of fun. Anyway, so I think I was an abject failure. But anyway, from that, <laughs> another bloke turns up in my life, a bloke called Gavin Disney. Mm-hmm. So Gavin Disney was a producer of Hey Hey at Saturday. And he was out looking for another another thing. Oh, and also new faces on television. Oh, yeah. So he's out and he's looking for another program. And he sets up a program called Healthy, Wealthy and Wise. I remember it well. Right, okay. So there's Healthy, Wealthy and Wise, which is Ian Hewitson yes. is the chef. Tonya Todman did all the craft. That's right. Peter Werrett did the – there was Jim Brown was there. My good mate, Lynn Talbot, who's still good mates with, uh, she was there as well. And uh, this was just a period of craziness in my life. In and, what way? Well, a television was just a different different animal mm. in some ways. And these were all eccentric characters and high high energy and all that sort of stuff. And I go back to the magazine that I was running that was supposed to be a very stressful job, a full-time job. And I'd sit there and go, oh, this is sanity. <laughs> These people right. are sane. So how, how, what was that work balance like? How, how much time was Healthy, Wealthy and Wise taking to do? Oh, I don't know, as much as it took. But yeah, you know, right. the good thing also was in those days, you know, your employer let you do more than one thing, which is partly where all my life I've never really concentrated on just one thing. I've mm. always had a few things in the air, probably sometimes to my detriment, but otherwise normally it's actually worked. But I've tried to make certain that one thing publicises another. Everybody tries to do it that way. Mm. Anyway, so the Healthy, Wealthy and Wise era turned quite handy for me. It was successful, all that sort of stuff. So I, can't rem- I can remember the show very clearly, but I can't remember... Um, I mean, I can remember the concept of the show, but I can't remember the actual show. So were you I was the, doing a segment or were you an actual... Wealthy. I yeah. was the wealthy one. So each week was no, there. No, wasn't wealthy. One. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but each week was there like a full section of the show that you were responsible yeah. for. Normally, I do a story uh, most weeks, right? Okay, and, and host the show, you know, front the show, whatever it might have been. So it was great, and you got the travel. So it was quite different, and so mm. that gave me a taste of full time television. But I was always told never ever, you know, sort of earn your income full time from television because it will end in complete and utter failure. Yeah. Little was I to know what was going to come in the in the future. So anyway, so eventually I, I stopped that because they made me the editor of BRW. And that lasted about two or three years. And the interesting thing is remember that BRW is owned by Fairfax. Mm-hmm. My career is going pretty well because I've set up a lot of magazines that have worked, including a new magazine that had basically taken off and was a blockbuster almost instantly from day one, which was called Shares Magazine. Right. It was basically the concept of that was to tell people what we thought about those shares and the thing boomed. Anyway, so that was okay. Um, so I'm running BRW and it was tough because big staff, uh, political, Fairfax at the time, Fred Hill was running Fairfax. And basically, in the end, Fred decides that he wants a financial review to take over Business Review Weekly, BRW, which eventually, in my opinion, guts the magazine. Magazine eventually dies. It no longer exists. It's now part fully of the financial review. So I think they made some fundamental mistakes. But out of that, I got shafted, right? Right. And that's as simple as it is. Everybody's career, some stage, you get shafted. So in my case, you had a few options. What do you do? And, you know, the payout's kind of handy, so that's nice. You don't have to worry too much about the dough. And a mate of mine out of the blue in London, who we'd worked with previously, rings me up and says, that magazine that you created in Australia, I'm thinking, I've just sold some magazines, I've got a few bob, I'm thinking about doing it in, in, in the UK. Do you fancy coming and have a look, having a look? Can you tell me how you did it? And I said, no problem. So I went to, the, went to London, 
had a look at his business plan and I thought, I can do this. And so I went to him and I said, yeah, okay, I'll come and do it for you. So I took a share of the magazine. Um, we're business partners, great mates even still today. And so in two, 1999, mm. we packed the family up. We just had a child. He'd been crooked. Uh, so this was big traumatic stuff for the family because mm. it wasn't so great. It was tough for the family. And we went to London. And honestly, we stayed nearly five years in London. And the magazine won Magazine of the Year in London first year. And um, it boomed first year. It was astonishing. Wow. So it was quite something to go into in London. Mm. When most people go to London, they go and work for an Australian company or something like that. In this case, I went to a bare room uh, in the borough market, just out of the borough market, a, a completely bare room. And it was, right, in six weeks' time, we put our first magazine out. So we had oh to hire goodness. the staff. We had to do all that. It was so much fun. So when you were making that move, what was the sort of lag time between the end of BRW and, and that phone call? Was it very long? Was no, there no, a... it was pretty much happening at the same time. It was basically the same, well, gee, same you time. kissed on the you-know-what? Like... Yeah, I reckon so. <laughs> Exactly. Usually it takes a bit of arming and ahhing and wandering around and going, what the hell am I going to do with my well, life? It was very funny because I said to my wife, look, to Tanya, I said, this could fail. In mm. fact, it, just about every magazine startup fails. I said, so here's the deal. We go to London. We have a good time. Uh, we're okay financially. We're not so badly off. Uh, the magazine technically fails inside 12 months or 18 months. We have 12 months living in France and then we come back to Australia. How does that sound? We'll be back in two or three years. She says, fine, no problems. I'll put up with that. <laughs> Five years later, the magazine's still going. Although I must admit, we got a massive offer for it, right? Mm. So this is the other thing about greed and all that sort of stuff. The massive offer for it inside 12 months after a magazine of the year and a company comes and approaches us, wants to pay us a truckload of shares and truckload of money and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so that's fantastic. We, we are flying. The tech wreck comes in the year 2000 when all the technology companies collapsed. And we're sitting there and the whole share market just goes thump And this is right in the middle of our negotiation. Oh. So while we're all checking out, you know, sort of Jaguars and Maseratis and things that we're all going to buy because we're going to make a shitload of money. Yeah, because you've already spent <laughs> it before it's the hit money, the wallet. Right? Yeah. We've already worked out what cars we're going to buy. What happens is we go to the pub. And oddly enough, strangely enough, do you remember the terror attacks that have just happened in London mm. in the last little while around the borough market? Mm. Strangely, we're in the pub, out, which we're inside the pub, where the three blokes were shot outside of. Oh, wow. Right? So that's how close that was and how personal it was. In mm. fact, people that I work with were involved in that actual incident, in that terror incident, which wow. is really very sad. So that was all close. But anyway, we're inside that pub, the Wheat Chief Hotel in the, in the, in the borough market. And we've got the envelope out, the literal envelope. We're doing the calculations on the back of the envelope. And we worked out that if this all went really badly, we were going to sell the magazine for basically a month, month and a half's cash flow. Okay. And we said, all right, well, it's not going to happen. We're going to have to hang on to the magazine. And so eventually that all happened. And um, it was great because, you know, the experience I had there eventually working for the BBC, doing work for, for CNN, for Bloomberg, it's kind of cool, you know. Yeah. We went to Ireland to set up magazines. We went to Italy. We went to France to, to, to look at these things. We went to Holland quite a few times to check it all out. It was, it was kind of fun. So you get great business experience, but also, you know, experiences of a lifetime to mm. be able to see all that sort of stuff firsthand. It's interesting how making something yourself from scratch gives you a legitimacy 
that people immediately buy into you as a person, as an expert, as, yeah. you know, it's it's amazing how pe- when people look at you and go, oh, you can build a magazine. That's right. right. We're going to get you on CNN because you are a somebody. Yeah, that's it. You know, it's And because you've had a go. Yeah. And people, and you know, th- this is where people, I think, are generous in spirit. Mm. Because when I'm in London, all of a sudden I'd turn up to the BBC and I'd see, I know, mates of mine that I'd known from Australia and they'd sit there and look and go, okay, this guy goes, all right, he's all right, he's not too bad, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so the next thing, you know, they go, oh, the Ross is all right. He can yeah. come, you know, so you're part of the family. And yeah. so then all of a sudden you're, you're sort of filling in hosting radio shows and you're doing, you know, bit, lots of spots on television and all sorts of people are ringing you. And it was fantastic. So as I say, this is where the network of Australians around the world is astonishing mm. because you will know somebody pretty much everywhere you go. And then also that ability to give somebody a go. Yeah. It was just quite incredible. So, you know, London was brilliant for us because there were great experiences there um, and just building this this business and the lifestyle was great, all that type of thing. Anyway, so then at some stage during all that time, John Alexander, who was then the chief executive of Channel 9, rings me up and says to me, we think about replacing our finance editor, who's Michael Pascoe. Now, this is an interesting thing about 9 that people don't realise. And that is now in, I think it's 33 years. In 33 years, Channel 9 has had two business editors. Oh, really? So Michael Pascoe was there for 18 years and I've been there now nearly 15 years. Wow. And it's just incredible to think that that time has gone so quickly. But, you know, it's a job. If you get it, it's a good job. Mm. And you obviously want to hang on to it. So he rang me and said, and it was highly political. So this is in the period where there's the big change. The whole Who Killed Channel 9 is based around this era. Mm-hmm. Um, and even my appointment ended up on the front page of, of the paper, for goodness sakes, because it was seen to be so controversial. Why was it seen to be controversial? Because Peter Meekin was the head of news and current affairs at nine. He perceived that Alexander was making hirings without giving him the call. He'd hired Yana Vent and then he hired me. And so ultimately that was the end of Peter Meekin. I think I walked into the front door of Channel 9 on the same day that Peter Meekin walked out the door. I think we crossed in the car park. Oh, wow. It was pretty amazing. So mm. this was how it worked. And of course, I've come in from doing a lot of uh, magazines, bits of radio here and there, but there is a fundamentally different thing and which I wanted to learn, if you like, appearing as a commentator on television and actually making television. So I w- again walked into Channel 9 And again, shitting myself, going, I know none of this. I don't know the systems. I don't know how this works. And really had to learn it on the fly. But I'm so glad I did because it's just one of the great skills is to be able to write the pictures, to be able to create those pictures. And it's in many ways like being a a magazine editor where all your focus artistically is on, on the front cover, on about selling it and all that type of thing. So it really gives you an ability not only to be very, you know, you know, you've got to be able to write, but also to be able to translate that into pictures. And it's, yeah. so it's the creativity of this that I've always loved in terms of the jobs that I've been able to get through in my life. So when you got offered that job, was that a sort of, oh, we thought we were going to be in London, but now we've got to take this opportunity kind of thing that you moved home? Or had yep. you always kind of planned to eventually no, move in lo- fact, from London? it was a big call. So mm-hmm. my first call, a couple of calls when I said that, I said, well, look, I've got... By that time, we had 45, nearly 50 staff, I think, in, in London. Wow. I said, well, I just can't drop 50 staff. I've got them all here. Obviously, had shares in the business. What would happen to the business if I walked away? But there was always something in the back of my head, and I'd learned that from Bob Gottlieb's and all those years ago. If you are the magazine, if the magazine is you, if you've got your name on it, it's hard to sell. 
Mm. How do you sell yourself? Mm. So my thing always was the test for the magazine that we created in London was at some stage you had to walk away from it because you had to test whether the magazine would stand on its own two feet because I was synonymous. I was the face of the magazine. So it was very, and I think that's a really big business decision that so many people have to make during their lives. How do you work out when to walk away from a business that bears your name? Mm. You know, think about Dick Smith in that case. Yeah, Very hard. How do you go and sell your name and then try and set up another business called Dick Smith? Very difficult to do that. So that, that was the thing. And as I walked away, I was very fortunate that you know, my mate over there, my business partner, was such a good businessman, could make a business operate even in really tough times. And he made the thing survive during the next few years. So it was fantastic. And so did you, you've, you've eventually, you sold that business now. We sold know? the business about four years ago. Right. So when I sit there, it's still there now. And I sit there and think, well, 1999 to 2017, the, the business has been going that we created is giving these people a job for the last 18 years. I kind of like that. That's amazing. It must also be interesting to see something that now exists without you and to go, oh, I made that. Well, that's right. <laughs> it, is, it is quite funny. Yeah. But it, it is. But, but, it's, but it gives you some sense of pride that you know you could actually go and do that and make that. So when I turn up at Channel 9, my wife, by the way, is saying to me, uh, excuse me, what about the failure plan? What about, <laughs> yeah, where's what about France? Where's France? Where's the 12 months or 18 months in France? Uh, that was supposed to be the failure plan, remember? <laughs> yeah. We're now coming back to Australia. What the yeah, hell is going on? I've put in five years over here right. and there's yeah, been that, no France. There's been no, no, no 12 months. <laughs> anyway, so well, I said, no, sorry, that was the, that was the disaster plan. We don't, we've got a best case plan. Okay, good. So we come back to Australia and it's, and it's been great. It really has. And the opportunities that television give you, what I love, with radio, say, for example, you, know, you and I can sit here and have a chat like this. With television, you've physically got to go to places. You've got to go and see things. Mm. And that is the brilliance of it because so many newspaper journalists will will basically be able to sit in the office. They don't have to go too many places. Mm. But if you want to experience things and create the pictures, you've got to go and meet people, see things and do it firsthand. And that's really what I've loved about television. And also just the power of a video and the power of, you know, the presence of, of, of television. That's what's really incredible. So if you're onto a good story, you can tell a good story, you can get to a big audience and it does have an impact. And I think that's really been terrific. So when you rocked up uh, that, that sort of first day, were they sort of saying, look, we need one story a week from you. You've got to create it. You've got to write it. You've got to, did you have a little team to work with? Like how did it uh, work when you first came in? The no, door? no, no. You're on your own pretty much. Right. There was Business Sunday in those days, mm. which went alongside Sunday. And so what happened then is that Business Sunday was uh, a unit in its own right. There were people there. And as the business said, you did stuff on the Today Show and then effectively did some stuff for Business Sunday, maybe interviews or maybe some pieces as well. Um, business Sunday, uh, which I ended up running for a year or so, and then Business Sunday got canned. Uh, and which was sad in some ways, but you know it was inevitable in a commercial world. You've got to accept these things. I think that's just the nature of the way in which it goes. But the, the but the fact was, it, it was early days, but it was kind of it was pretty cruisy. There mm. wasn't so much to do for news. The interesting thing was that news didn't want finance stories in those days, and this was one of the great revelations that we made later on, and that was that. Finance was always seen to be a special subject. Mm. And I always hated that because to me, as I've said, finance is just something that is a part of everyday life. Mm. Every story has finance at the bottom of it. But in many, for, for many traditional news directors, it was 
the part of the, the paper was down the back. The people didn't read. Yeah. And so I, we tried to change that. And ultimately, it was Darren Wick here, the head of news and current affairs, when he became the boss and came to me and said, Ross, you know, we've got to change the way in which we do this. And he'd run a current affair. He'd run the Today Show. So we knew the sort of stuff that we'd done. And you had to bring this thing to life. And so that's what we kind of did. And we did some wacky stuff along the way. And, you know, it's it's kind of kind of fun doing it. Mm. Uh, and as I said, you know, on the, on the business editor of Channel 9, I've been thrown out of helicopters. I've been set on fire. I've swum with sharks. I've kissed seals. <laughs> I've done weird things, right? It's boring finance. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's also kind of nice to have... Uh, it's not like you're hired as a reporter on a certain show. There's a sense of longevity uh, in the role that you have, which is let us employ you as the finance editor and then you'll be able to do all these little bits and pieces, yeah. little segments that will get you to host this that, and the other thing. It's a nice overarching um, sort of sense of security where you also get to do all of the great bits of television that a lot of people just get, thrown into for five seconds and then thrown out of again. Yeah, I guess so. And that's the, that's a good thing. And because you've got a, a sort of a, a network role as distinct from, you know, working on one particular project or show, mm. you're right. You can get thrown into different scenes. So, you know, quite different doing, say, the Today Show, uh, some of the stuff we've done there as compared with doing news or doing something for 60 Minutes or in the past for Sunday or Business Sunday where you'd you know, get some tremendous opportunities to make some longer stories, some, some, some really important stories along the way as well. And that's part of the thing. At your very heart, your essence, you've got to be a journalist who still wants to break a story, mm. still wants to get something new out of all of this as well. Uh, and that's really in many ways what the job at Channel 9 gives me. It gives me this outlet for my writing an outlet for my finance stuff, but also an outlet for enormous creativity mm. um, to be, and, and even a bit of performance thrown in there as well. Oh, you got and, plenty of flair. Well, no, I'm <laughs> just a dull business. <laughs> How much non-businessy finance stuff have you done at the network? Much? Uh, a bit, yeah. So we, we. Do you have a thirst for it? I feel like there's some untapped Ross that we need to see. Uh, maybe. Uh, look, there, there is, and generally it's on the Today Show. Mm. So I'll do, I've, in the past year or so, I've done a lot of the setup pieces. So we've gone out to, oh, I don't know, Broken Hill and done the big setup pieces out there, or we've gone to um, places like. Um, uh, uh, where the opals come from, which is um, come on, Ross, think, think, oh, think, I think, think. You're get no not help not, from not me. Lightning Ridge, the other one, oh, which I've we know. No anyway, so but but all these types of places, you go to different places mm. and you do the setups and you do 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 great things. Cooper Petey. Anyway, right. so um, what happens in these places is you, you do get to do you know show off a bit of your own personality in these things as well and it's kind of fun mm. and even some of the little you know sort of hokey things that we've done you know like doing sort of uh, spoofs of songs like the the song bills yeah i got bills <laughs> i want to think so we do that right so we so we have fun and you've got to actually ultimately have fun and take the mickey out of yourself yeah of course i mean it's nice to have the opportunity to do that because i think some people that i've worked with who end up getting pigeonholed in one area it can kind of get a bit straight jackety after yeah. a while uh, and you and there can be a sense that oh there's there's a little bit more that I want to show of myself that I don't really get to show. But when you're working on a show like the Today Show, even little things like you know doing the the grill or a segment like that, yeah. that you know that sort of stuff gives you a chance to kind of have a bit more of your personality. Having a bit, have a bit of your opinion come out exactly. And it was very you know, and that's one of the reasons why I've been able to stay for so long at nine because when I left London, I'd even said to my wife, I'd said to my business partner over there, look, I'll be back in three years. I, I was determined to go back to London. 
But three years on, of course, you know, life changed here and mm. everything kept changing. And so you haven't got necessarily one career, one role, one pigeonhole you're in. You're constantly changing and evolving, doing different things. And you're still learning about mm. the medium. And as I said, one of the great things about coming to Nine was to actually learn from and walking into a new newsroom like the Nine newsroom, you know, Kenny Sutcliffe, Peter Overton, we're in his office now, you know, <laughs> yeah. Harves, Peter Harvey when he's there, Laurie Oakes just retired. To have these people around in your newsroom and all that sort of stuff, you'd look around and go, well, these are some of the great all-time legends. Mm. And you're sitting amongst them and learning from them and having a chat with them and having a coffee or whatever it might be with them. It's, it's, it's a very, very cool, dynamic environment to live in. I feel like your approach is probably a really good one. Even when you went to London, you were like, if the mag fails, we'll go to France for a year. When you come back here, you go, we'll do it for three years, then we'll move back to London. Having that escape plan already planned in your head yep. means you're not walking into a job going, this has to be the thing that makes my life complete. This has to last forever. This is the thing I will be doing till the day I die. You already walk in the door going, I'm here for a good time, not a long time. Yep. And then then everything on top is a bonus after that. It's got to be. Mm. Isn't life about that, though? Yeah, of if course. If you sit there and say, what's the worst possible thing that can go wrong? And you say, can you cope with that? And if you say, yes, I can, then you ultimately, life goes on. And I'll tell you what, when we get to, to finance, the level of financial security that you've got, and which ultimately I got from Fairfax when they paid me out a truckload of money at that time, that level of financial comfort that you get, which means... I can afford to fail. It gives you enormous comfort in terms of the roles that you undertake in the future. And so as a result, you actually do a job because you want to do it, not because you have to do it. Mm. In other words, if this all stopped tomorrow, well, that might be a bit sad, but ultimately you'd keep on going mm. and, and you'd find the life, you'd find a, a great lifestyle, all that type of thing. And so, you know, the real measure of financial success, which a lot of people never achieve in their lives is the fact that you can choose a job because you want to do it, not because you have to do it. Yeah. And I think that's the real trick. That should be almost the aim for people in their lives. And as I say, so many people in their lives never achieve that or end up in an unhappy job that they don't feel that they can leave because they're not certain what comes after that. Mm, there's nothing more powerful than the ability to say no. That's right. Mm, yeah. And, you know, I'm not very good at saying no, by the way. <laughs> I've just no. said yes to too many things in my life. Yeah. It's just, oh, can you do that? Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. Do well, and hence why you're now, uh, you know, working at Channel 9, but also you work at 2GB doing the radio there. Yes. How, how did that, that radio sort of stuff start? And is that something that well, you want to do more of? Well, there's a little story, a backstory there, which I is another this. speed bump in a career, right? Mm. So a speed bump in my career happens here at 9 when a former, well, a former senior executive here decides that, the finance division, again, as I said, old school producers and so forth, didn't really understand the value of the finance. And so as a result, basically wanted to take apart the whole finance unit, including me. Mm. And so strangely enough, I've managed to survive that person, which is kind of handy. Mm. But the second part about this is that at that time when, and it was a period when Gingell was away, David Gingell was away. And so what happened, he'd just come back in and the negotiations were going, it was pretty delicate. So while this was all going on, I get a call from 2GB that says, we're thinking about a finance show. And I go, oh, okay. So I'm going to have a bit of a chat with them, but it's pretty slow. It's not really happening. Anyway, so in the meantime, I'm sitting there trying to work out that worst case scenario. I'm going, well, okay, I've got to figure something out to do. Mm. Anyway, so David Gingell comes back in and sits me down and says, well, what's going on? I said, well, I've got this sort of offer over GB. 
you guys obviously aren't keen, so that's okay. He says, no, 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 no. He says, Ross, you just stay exactly where you are. We're going to set up a new deal for you. And the new deal that was set up at that time was that basically I quit, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was great, but then, you know, was rehired immediately by everybody, including the radio <laughs> station. And that's how the radio program started. So the radio program started as half an hour on GB as a bit of an experiment for them. And I think they thought they were going to get an old-style Q&A personal finance program. Mm. But because I've worked on the Sunday program and I'd come to this view that finance was now this this more overarching thing and that you could do so many more things in current affairs. And that's what I want to do. I want to do a current affairs show. I started doing that. So after the first week, it then went immediately to an hour. But within six months or so, three months or so, it was a two-hour program. And it took dead air in radio, which was the amazing thing, between six and eight, which was always considered dead air where you could not sell ads, you could not make any money. And I considered my audience, business people, small business people, well, peak hours now got later. Peak hour is between six and eight. Mm. I, I figured that my audience was in the car and I was talking to them. Mm. And so as a result, the advertising took off as well. And suddenly what was two hours where they could make no money they were making quite a large amount of money. Classic and bloody so, Ross Greenwood and the Midas touch. Well, no, no, no. It's a, <laughs> no, it's a it's a little lesson for people in terms of your career. If you have money attached to you, you are generally relatively immune mm. from the problems that go if on. If you can make money for a company. You've yes. got to work a way out to make money for a company. Absolutely. There has to be a commercial solution to most things. And the problem in journalism is always that most journalists are service providers they don't see themselves as being commercially connected to the company. In mm-hmm. fact, in many cases, the worst cases, they see themselves commercially you know, divorced from the company. And so that is a fundamental problem. Now, you've got to have standards. You've got to have ethics. You've got to know when to hit people hard, all that type of thing. You cannot favour a person just because they advertise on your program. You've got to make that absolutely stone clear to everybody. But the fact of the matter is you've got to understand that you cannot also discriminate against a person who advertises because they do advertise. Of course. So these are all important commercial questions that many journalists do not ever understand or get. Yeah. It's that weird balance. I think sometimes you talk to people and they're like, oh, but I'm above this and I'm at best, but it's a job. And particularly Merrick Watts and I have often had conversations about this because um, in radio, in particular in commercial radio, you find that there are a lot of presenters who won't meet with clients. They find it an inconvenience, you know, it's, it's something that they don't want to deal with. And you think if nobody will buy ads in your show and if your advertisers aren't happy and don't say, you know what, I want to invest and sponsor that show for another six months, then you don't have a job. That's it. So it's not about going and, and you know, filthing yourself by sitting down with the money people. It's about saying, hey, how can we partner with you so that you're getting something out of this, but we're also ab- able to go and have the play money that we require to live out our audio dreams. <laughs> You understand that? Yeah. It's about building an audience mm. and having the advertisers come because you have that audience. Which exactly. Is, which is exactly what say this is all about. Mm. So there's that side of it. So then there's a second little part about that, little trick in life. And I learned this, strangely, from one of the cast members of Healthy, Wealthy and Wise many years ago when I saw him in a pub in Mildura, completely and utterly cracked the shits and was the rudest person I've ever seen in my life at that time. Mm. Now, this person I get on quite well with, but that's okay. But I sat there and I thought the person went out of their way to make themselves unapproachable and relatively unpleasant Mm. at that time. And I sat there and I looked at this and I went, wouldn't you have been best to have used that energy, the same energy that you have just expended 
to have been nice to the person. Had you been nice to this person, the person would have thought you were, you know, quite a, li- quite a lovely person. You would have expended less energy, taken less time. Mm. And at the end of the day, that person would have walked, walked away saying, nice bloke. Yeah. As distinct from walking away and saying, asshole. Yeah. I mean, this is the, these are surely little tricks in life that most people <laughs> should go. It takes as much energy to be an asshole as it does to be a nice person. Yeah. More so, I more would so. say. Yeah. That's you right. make things so much more difficult for yourself. And I go, really? Was that worth it Was in the that end? Really like, worth it? It's true. Yeah. Now so, we all feel awkward and weird, and we could have, this could have been so much better. When you see the three year old having a tantrum, yeah. you go, Really? It's just funny. I know. It's ridiculous. So do you think in in your career you've had a plan or it's just come down to you saying yes to things when they've been presented to you? It's been me saying yes to things when they're presented. There's no doubt. Opportunity is opened up. And what I think is basically you've got to work hard once you've got the opportunity. You've got to recognise the opportunity. You've got to recognise it might be a finite period of time that you've got it. Say, for example, when you turn up here at Channel 9, they create you with a security pass. And each morning at about 5.30, I go to the back door, security pass works, and you walk in the door. Mm -hmm. But I've always thought with television, I always said this, when you sign on for television, there's a little silver bullet that they write your name on. Mm. And at some stage, if you stay long enough, you'll get it between the eyes, right? (laughs) And I've always thought the other thing, when I turn up at the back door each morning, if my security pass doesn't work, I'll just take it as a sign that somebody's cut me and hasn't told me. So I'll just turn around, get back in the car and go home. You can't, they, you can't, but they can't bear to have the conversation but, with you. But yeah, that's right. But, but I think it's really just, it is about trying to make certain that you've got this idea. You can have a rough idea as to what you'd like. But also, you know, was it always one of my ideas that I would like to, to learn television? Yeah, sure. I got the opportunity. I said yes. And it went from there. Was it my, my idea at some stage that I could create a magazine and maybe have one come out of my head as I did in London? The answer was, yeah. And, and, and you managed to fulfill that dream. Mm. And, you know, and it's, it's just this you know, amazing ongoing sort of evolution in some ways of your skills, but also just that ability to go and find something you enjoy that gives you the outlet that you require. And as I say, not every person finds that in their life, but I've been really fortunate in that way to have an ongoing process where I've found things that have, have really given me that given me that satisfaction. And when you get those opportunities, you have to have the work ethic to stick at it. Like your days are how long now? Uh, I'm in here at 5.30. Um, it depends on the days, of course, whether there's a mm. news story on or not. But if you've got a news story on, you basically work through the day on that news story. I generally try and have that finished by 3, 3.30 at the latest jump in the car, uh, race across to town to near the fish markets, Piermont, uh, into radio, a couple of hours preparation, on air, finish at eight, uh, then bolt out of there, home by quarter past half past eight. That's a long day. It's a long day. But it's addictive, right? It's like oh, yeah. uh, there's there's something cool about, oh, I'm, I'm useful all day. I've got this and then <laughs> I go and do that and then I go and do this. Yeah, it's also, you know, and, and I just think in some ways it's a marathon. One foot yes. in front of the other. Don't get too far ahead of yourself mm. and basically take what's in front of you at that time. And I, I think that's the idea. I've worked out in my life that my attention span's probably a bit short. Mm. I'm far better off working on projects that have got relatively short lead times and very, very long lead times. Definitely. Because if I've got a long lead time, I'll just wait until the last minute and yeah. do it like it's a, a, a same-day process anyway. So, but, but I've got to say that the radio is fantastic because there's nothing better than when a story breaks on radio and you're on top of it. And it's all happening and producers are going flat out and you're getting calls in from all over the place. You know, the adrenaline levels are high. You're on top of the story and that is also 
another sort of high that you get from the media that many people, you know, perhaps don't get in their jobs as well. What do you think is the best and the worst thing about the industry? The worst thing is the future for the young people coming through. I think young people, and I sometimes sit here and look at young people who come to Channel 9 um, or to radio, for example, they don't get paid very much money. Um, now, you know, maybe they've got the stars in their eyes, but these kids have had to shoot the lights out in HSC. They've had to then get through their colleges and shoot the lights out in colleges uh, for, for young women, even young men to a certain extent. They've got to be relatively attractive if they're going to make a start in, mm. in, in, in television. Then they get sent to the bush for three or four years to see whether they can, you know, cut it out in the bush. If they survive that, they might come back and then they're given an overnight shift between midnight and eight and they're paid 45 grand or something like that. You know, it's, it's the life that they want to have, but it's a real filtration uh, system yeah. to see which ones survive all of that. Um, and, and that makes it very tough for young people going forward in the future. Kids who might have otherwise gone out and been, you know, sort of, I don't know, they could have been bureaucrats, they could have been somebody else and got instantly better better jobs and better lives. Mm. But if they can get through all of that, there's no doubt that the, the thrill of the chase, the, 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 the life that they can have can be sensational. So that's, in my, my mind, the worst of it. The best part of it is there's no doubt just, I kind of guess it's a job where you get to show off. Yeah, that's true. Right? Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, in life, acknowledgement is kind of nice. Mm -hmm. You've always got to keep your feet relatively on the ground realise that people who pat you on the back, well, there's many people who hate you as well. Mm. And, and you've got to take all of that in your stride. And, and I think that's the, 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 real, the real trick of it. But, it. but it's a cool job. Mm -hmm. You get to see things. You get to experience things. You get to create things that most people don't in their lives. And that's the best part of it. There's no doubt. We're down to the final five questions. Oh, Lord. I feel like now all of a sudden that bullet point sort of very sparse resume that I saw before is completely flooded with detail now. Oh, is it? I feel oh, like I know me. you so much better. Oh, my <laughs> So your, the first of the five questions, your biggest regret? Biggest regret? Um, I, look, in some ways it, it's actually been the best thing in my life but the worst. I sometimes regret not knowing what would have happened if I'd kept, kept the London story going. Would have I become the business editor at the BBC? Mm. Would have I become the editor of the financial? I, I don't know. Mm. They, they were areas that could have potentially been in front of me. Could have I become the business editor at the Times? I don't know. Mm. Those kind of things. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's potential. It, it, that it's could a, have it, happened. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a regret, but yeah. it's just, just that... Fork in the road. I don't know where it would have gone to. And I never found out. Yeah. So that, that's kind of like, that is a regret. There's no doubt. It's not a bad regret mm. because what did I do? I came back here and had one of the great jobs in the world. What about, I mean, when you work in the business, it always looks a lot bigger and shinier on the outside. For Australian journalists and people in media here, London would seem like, oh my gosh, it's such a big thing. When you are working in it, does it feel just the same as working no. here at home? No. No. This is so cosy. This, this is <laughs> London journal. It's It's... It's shitty offices, it's sweaty, it's a bit manky. Oh, really? And every day, every single day you compete. Yeah. And it's also physically hard mm. because moving around London is physically difficult. Mm. And even though I'd end up in television studios or radio studios, whatever it might be, and really cool sort of things to do, but, you know, and the great part about London is actually walking and learning the town and really understanding it in a big way. But it, but you never lose sight of the fact that every day you get up and you compete like you don't compete here in Australia. 
And that's something that people miss when they go to London. They don't understand just that very competitive nature of it internally and externally. Mm. Well, it's, it sounds like over here is pretty good. Uh, your dream gig? Well, I'll tell you what. Why wouldn't there be a role for a finance editor in sort of a musical somewhere? I think that would be probably suitable <laughs> for me, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> do you want to get into musical theatre, Ross? Yeah, I think I do. <laughs> I can't sing. I think that'll be a handicap. But I don't see why not, frankly. I, oh, I mean, you can do there anything. Are no, there are no limitations, are there? No, life? you can do anything. But, you know, the funny thing is the performance thing is always fun. That's mm. that's a part of this role. And, um, you know, it's, it's good. And the other thing also is in terms of just projects to work on, it's those bigger projects. I see some of the BBC, the Channel 4 projects that they work on. They are great projects to work on, big picture projects, great pictures, great technology. That's what I kind of love. I love all that combination of things. So when we do our election coverage here, all the technology that we use for that election coverage is absolutely cool. I love all that stuff. Yeah. It's, it's really good. Is there a big idea that you've yet to get up? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> i got a lot of them. How's <laughs> that idea? What do you mean? Do is you, there one? Do you, are you always constantly on the notepad thinking about ideas? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Because you've got to have ideas about ways it could change the world. So we've got little small businesses out there that we, we help to fund and run and set them up and try and get them going. One of them's in video editing to try and streamline that and make it cheaper for people. We've got that going. So, you know, there's all sorts of little things. My wife's a serial entrepreneur as well. She's had run clothes shops. Got enough, she's got more ideas than me. Yeah, so right. generally it's me trying to hold those ideas back and say, oh, I'll fund that one, not one, pull that one. But she's good. Oh, that's So cool. she's she's a serial entrepreneur in some ways as well. That's a really nice partnership to have, I think, because it's nice if you – sometimes that entrepreneurship, it can be a pretty solo experience. But to have a partner who's in, interested in that kind of thing that you can maybe work on things together – that's really nice. Yeah, and also she's also got to be that entrepreneur in many ways because she also has to put up with my crazy life. Yeah. And, you know, it's me who's dragged us in different parts of the world, which has all been great for her, great lifestyle. But you've got to always recognise that you've got family with you and, and you've got to at least be conscious and considerate of, of where their life is going to. And yeah, that you course. can't completely completely destroy their life because of you know, your your selfish career as to where that's going. It can't just be everybody dragging along behind your dreams. Well, you'd hope not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'd hope not. Sometimes it can feel yeah, like that, though. There's yeah, no doubt. Absolutely. But it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's super important that everybody follows their own dreams. They could be they could be different, but... Yep. Yeah. Um, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? If I wasn't doing this... I'd be, well, right now, with you, I'd be playing golf. Probably. No, oh, wouldn't be. no, that's not true. Um, I probably would be playing golf. I've delayed um, the tee off. Have you? That's exactly right. <laughs> no, look... I think what I've really got in my mind, if I, if say, for example, all this stopped tomorrow, I've just got so many ideas for travel that have, that have come from living in London. Even the way in which people live in London compared with in Australia gave me so many different ideas about how you can lead your life. And so, say, for example, um, you know, it's about trying to do the big trips that I've always wanted to do, little obscure things to go and see places. And this job has given me a unique ability to go and see so many different parts of the world. But mm. but again, I, I know that there's still so many more 
little things like that that I would like to do. So I do that for a while until I got a bit bored. And then I come back and set up a new business, I kind of guess. That'd be what you do. <laughs> I think the upshot of all of this is that whatever happens, you'll be fine. Oh, look, I'm you know, it's <laughs> you'll okay. Be fine. Don't worry, people. It's okay. <laughs> uh, and finally, your advice to people wanting to get into the business. Into journalism? Mm, media. Be, you've just got to be persistent. And you've got to understand it is not a free kick. It's not easy. Uh, journalism is being basically fragmented right now. Um, and and, and for, I think broadly, it's been good the way it's been fragmented through social media and through websites and through blogs and so forth. I think it's been fantastic. Um, but that means that there are more people doing it. And because there's more people, quite clearly, the ability to get paid is getting tougher and tougher. And so therefore, to get a premium uh, as an individual makes it harder. One of the great things that I was very fortunate to do in my career, and I didn't even know this, know this at the time, is if you think about personal finance, say, for example, which is where I was for a long period, there were only two or three people in Australia who did that. Paul Clitheroe, David Koch, myself, maybe Peter Switzer. And um, the thing was, having competing with three or four, when there were three or four different commercial television or new, you know, news outlets, that was pretty convenient. If you're competing with 60 or 80, mm. it makes it much tougher. And so you've got to in life be one of one or one of two. And you've got to be considered to be that expert because that's the way in which obviously your marketability becomes so much greater. And I think that's that's something that every person should aspire to be, whether you're a jockey or whether you're a, a, a supermodel or whatever you are. You know, it's, it's that filtration process up to the top that's really important. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, just the way in which you go forward with this, the advice to the young person is that you've got to love what you do. Mm. Bottom line is you just got to love it. And if you don't love it, get out and do something else. You've got to find something that you love in life. You've got to find someone that you love in life. You've got to find all those things. But you've got to have the passion for it. Otherwise, what gets you up in the morning? What keeps you there late at night? If you don't have the passion, you don't feel like you're doing the right thing, and that this is right for you and right for maybe your audience, whatever it might be, your market, then, then you're in the wrong place. Sound advice. I think it might be golf time. Thank you so it's much for joining golf time at all. me. I've got to go and do some more work. For goodness <laughs> sakes, Rachel. What are you talking about? Thank you, Ross. I appreciate your time. Right, okay. Lovely to chat. How good was that? Eh? I know, right? <laughs> Let's, do <it> <laughs> Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thanks so much for listening to my chat with the lovely and slightly nuts in a wonderful way, Ross Greenwood. Uh, it's lovely to see that a few new people have found the show in this past little while. Shout out to Judith HS and Shelby775 who have left a review in iTunes saying that they have stumbled across the podcast and are enjoying it. I really appreciate you letting me know. If you are enjoying the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to it. Next week, I've got the lovely Shane Jacobson joining me. Of course, you would know him as Kenny from one of the most successful Australian films of all time. He is in some ways the perfect guest for this podcast because he has written a book about his life story that is called The Long Road to Overnight Success. He is truly a great example of how you need to keep chipping and chipping and chipping away before eventually this career gets a life of its own. After Kenny, of course, he became a household name, but it is so fascinating to know the work that it took to actually get him to that point. He talks a lot 
lot about that film, which was really the turning point for his career in a lot of ways, and how originally it was just planned to be a short film that won $3,000 at the film festival, and that was going to be it. He took that $3,000 with his brother and put on a special screening for the workers of Splashdown, the company that Kenny works for in the film. And at that screening, something happened that changed the fate of his life forever. Towards the end of that night, Glenn Pruska, who owns, still owns Splashdown, said, I've got some friends that are in the audience that have a bit of money, uh, are attached to a family that have a bit of money, and they'd be interested in giving you a million dollars to turn that into a feature. So we never were going to make a feature film. That thing was supposed to stop that night and maybe turn up at a few more festivals. And then they... So we were being approached and my brother didn't want to take a million dollars. He said they'll lose it. If we try and turn this into a feature film, they won't get their money back. Australian films don't make their money back. And he said there's no more of a story to tell. We've been filming for like a year. Um, So anyway, uh, we went over to talk... Clay wanted to talk Glenn out of it, saying that you can't just turn that into a feature film. And why were we having this chat about not turning it into a feature film? Glenn Pruska's wife came over and interrupted the meeting and said, sorry to interrupt you guys. Uh, and she said, Glenn, I, we just need to know, I'll never forget the guy's name, Ron from American is on the phone, which is an American toilet company, bang, comedy gold, <laughs> said, uh, just needs to know if we are or aren't going to exhibit at the Pumper and Cleaner Expo in Nashville. And he said, yeah, let's bite the bullet, let's do it. And my brother said, what's, what's that? <laughs> and they said, it's the Pumper and Cleaner Expo in Nashville. He said, he's looking at me going, what is that? And they said, it's the World Toilet Expo. Man, it's, it's Poo HQ. <laughs> and seriously started describing how massive this thing is. And my brother said, that is what this film needs. You, we go to that. We've got a movie. I hope you'll join me for that chat. I'll see you next week. <laughs> 